0: You will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans." I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Let's pray. Jesus, you stood in a room and spoke these words to Folks that you loved dearly who had troubled hearts. People that you loved dearly who yet to fully understand the divine truths and the implications of what you were about to do and even the words that you were speaking. But the promise that you gave to those men was that you were true. You were who you said you were for them to believe in you. And the promise you gave to them was that when you ascended, you would send the Holy Spirit the very same spirit that is present with us. And so we pray to you, Jesus, that we would give ourselves to the spirit, that we would long to have the spirit illuminate your word and your work to us in this moment. Many of us have troubled hearts and most of us maybe even rightly so. And so Lord, I pray for an outpouring of your spirit that you would empower your word the preaching and the proclamation of your word and that you would help us to understand your word in your name we pray amen um you could be seated go ahead i i want to begin uh i want to begin this morning um kind of grouping together the teaching um just kind of maybe as a subset like What's what, something that Jesus is doing here in John the 14th chapter, 15th chapter, and 16th chapter, as he's teaching his disciples, his disciples with troubled hearts, as he's teaching them, he's beginning to describe to, him, to them the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to be with you very much longer. Their hearts are troubled by that, but it's okay. I'm going to ascend to the Father. When I get to the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit. We see that happening in Acts of chapter two. And when the Spirit comes, He will help you. Now, this can be helpful for us because I know that we, as a as a church, uh, by and large, like we are a uh, kind of kind of a mixed bag, right? We're we're kind of a theological mutt. Like you all have like different theological backgrounds, and that's a good thing. That some of you grew up in a theological background where your Trinity. So God exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't understand that, that's okay. Stay with it. It's it's a hard concept to understand, but you may understand that God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but your Trinity and the church that you grew up in may have looked something like this. You believe that there was a Father and that there was a Son and there was the Holy Spirit. We didn't talk much about him because we get scared when he shows up. We don't know what's gonna happen. And the church down the road, they've got a Father, and a son, and a Holy Spirit. And they act like mad people down there, right? They do all kinds of crazy things that we heard. And so maybe you grew up in a church where there just wasn't a a good emphasis on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want to be a church that rightly emphasizes the Trinity as the Bible emphasizes the Trinity. And so Jesus, as he's about to ascend, he wants to talk to his disciples. He wants to soothe their troubled hearts. He wants to set up what the church is going to look like. And Jesus is saying... Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will be the one who will enable this to happen. In fact, this is what Jesus' own words. Look at with me, if you've got your Bibles, turn over maybe a page and look at John, the 16th chapter. Jesus says this in verse number seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So for the next few weeks, this is what I want to talk about. The advantages of Jesus' ascension and the Spirit's descension. And Jesus outlines these advantages for us. This morning, we're going to do, just lay a lot of groundwork about the Holy Spirit. We're going to get, I'm going to give you one advantage and then next week we'll come back and maybe look at a second one and like we'll go on like that for a while um, in the text. So some advantages that Jesus gives. Well, like I said, first, let me, let me lay down some groundwork, all right? When we think about our salvation, when we think about how God has rescued us and reconciled us to himself, saved us from our sin, this is what we can say in regards to the Trinity. We could say this, that it is the Father who appoints our salvation. It is the Father who has appointed, who appoints our salvation. It is the Father who plans the plan of salvation. It is the Father's plan to adopt us, to bless us, to redeem us, to forgive us through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians, the first chapter, verse nine, he calls it this. It's a mystery. It was the mystery of God's will was hidden in the ages. It's now being revealed to us. It is a mystery of his will according to his purpose, the father's purpose, which the father set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things in Christ, he's speaking of things in heaven and things on earth. So it's the father who has appointed it, the father who has planned it. It's a predestined plan that God's had before the foundation of the world, before Genesis one ever unfolds. The father already has this plan in place. It's the father who has appointed it. It is the Son who accomplishes salvation. The Father appoints it, the Son accomplishes it. How is salvation accomplished? It's through the obedience of the Son, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who comes and lives perfectly, who dies substitutionary, who rises after he's dead victoriously, triumphantly. It's Jesus who does all of that. It is through Jesus that you and I are reconciled to the Father. It's through our faith in him. But it's Jesus who comes, puts on flesh, does the hard work of getting it, the job done. It's Jesus who lives perfectly. It's Jesus who's tempted and says no and submits himself to the Father. It's Jesus who, in just a short hours in John the 14th chapter, will be tried, arrested, beaten, beard plucked from his face, nailed to a cross, put in a tomb, But he will rise again victoriously. It's Jesus who accomplishes salvation. And then it is the Spirit who applies all that the Father has appointed and all that Jesus has accomplished. It's the Spirit who applies that to us. That apart from the work of the Spirit, salvation would be a good thought to think. It would be good truths to learn. It would be good theology for us to mull over. But it is the, it is active. Salvation is active. It's present, it's powerful work in our lives because of the application of all that Jesus has accomplished, all that the Father has planned. The Spirit makes it a reality to us. Now, you and I, we live this, we feel this. This is our experience, is it not? When the Bible speaks about sin, it talks about guilt. We see this all the way back in the garden, the first sin that Adam and Eve did. After they sinned, what, it wasn't that they were like, hey, here we are, just hanging out. No, they hid from God. God's presence shows up. Adam and Eve, they hide. They put on fig leaves because their innocence has been lost. They feel a sense of guilt. Throughout the Old Testament, guilt's spoken about, and it's talked about about dirty hands. You have dirty hands. There's a, there's a psalm. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall climb the mountain of, of the Lord? He who has a four-wheel drive truck. No, that's not what it says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart The sin, the way that sin works is when we sin, we feel guilt for our sin. How is that guilt removed? Well, ultimately it's removed because Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. So that when you have faith in Christ, trusting in Christ, Christ is standing in your place, bringing about forgiveness. The father is punishing the son. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is dying on a cross for your sin, not for his, for yours. Jesus removes that sin, therefore he removes that guilt. But sometimes we still feel guilty, do we not? Take a passage of scripture like 1 John 3. Think around verse number 20. It talks about our hearts condemning us. Even though our hearts condemn us, there's one who's spoken who's greater than our hearts. What he's talking about is the work of Christ on the cross that we must believe it ends in like verse 25 with the work of the Spirit that you and I, what, what removes that sense of guilt in our lives, what takes away that sense of guilt and gives us a sense of freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christ does the work, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that brings about that sense of forgiveness. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever sinned? Before? Right? And have you ever felt that guilt within? Have you ever felt like your hands literally were dirty? Your, your mouth was dirty? Remember Isaiah, when he, when he sees the vision of the Lord and, and um, the Lord in his fullness of his, of his glory, he, he sees a vision of that? And what's the first thing that Isaiah says? Woe unto me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Have you ever felt that? But then have you ever felt through, through prayer and through faith? Have you ever felt that? relief that comes in, that relief. That's the work of the Spirit in our hearts and our lives. That's what the Father has planned it, that we would be forgiven. All of our guilt be removed through the through how? the work of Christ accomplishing that, but then it's the Spirit that brings it to us. Now, when we sin, we should feel guilt. Uh, Richard Sibb says in his book, um, The Bruised Reed, he says that Willful breaches in our sanctification will greatly hinder our sense of justification. That's a mouthful, but there's so much truth there. When you and I, when we willfully sin against the Lord, we should feel guilt. We should feel like something is awry. We should feel that our hands are dirty, our mouths are dirty, but then what do we do? We can run to the Lord and then the Lord can bring about a sense, if you will. He brings about a sense of freedom, a sense of cleansing, a sense of victory. All right, observations about the Holy Spirit. That's just the practical things. Let me make a few observations. We'll jump down into verse number 16. We'll come back and hit 12, but right now let's look at verses number 16 and 17. Let me read it again so it's fresh in your mind. And Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. A couple of things that I want to say about the Holy Spirit from this text. Number one, he is the Holy Spirit. Now, I know in that section, Jesus doesn't call him the Holy Spirit, but we see it again in verse number 26. But the helper... We saw that in our text. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, Jesus says. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He's same in substance as the Father and the Son and equal in power and glory. He is called the Holy Spirit because holy means he's complete. He's separate. He's perfect. The Holy Spirit differentiates him from all other spirits. He's called the Holy Spirit because of his special work is to produce holiness and order. In all that he does, he applies Christ's work of salvation and this brings about holiness. His objective is to produce holiness and to create a holy people, the children of God. First, he is the Holy Spirit. Second is, we see here, he is our helper. Now, some translations will translate this word comforter. Like if you're using King James Version, New King James Version, it's going to be the word comforter. Is anybody using a new international version? What's it say there? Anybody got that? No? I don't remember. It's either comforter or helper. But I think the better translation is the word helper. I think the word comforter, when it's translated like that, can be a little bit misleading because the Spirit does much more than comfort. Now, the Spirit does comfort. In fact, Jesus will say this in, um, in verse number 27. Jesus will say, peace I leave to you, peace I give you. Not as the world gives, pe- my peace I give to you. How do we have a sense of that peace? Well, it comes through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So it brings about comfort, he brings about peace, but it's even more than that. It's more than comfort. His work is more, it's more expansive than just bringing comforter, comfort. The word translated helper or help, the word translated um, comfort is the word paraclete. Paraclete, not parakeet, right? Paraclete is the word. Para means to come alongside of, to be beside. And cleat means to call. A paraclete was someone you called to come alongside you to help you in a time of need. Someone to stand in your defense. The Spirit is the helper who comes alongside of us, helping us in this present life, helping us to live out all that Jesus has accomplished for us helping us in the very practical and in our very present lives, in our very present experience, it is the Spirit who comes to come alongside of us to help us. In fact, he's called here, I will send another helper, another paraclete. If there's another, then who was the first helper in paraclete? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one that the Father called, summoned, sent, that came alongside of the disciples. He's meeting in the room there with them. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the one who's provided for them, protected them, spoke truth to them. Every question they ever had, they could go to Jesus and ask that question. Jesus provided with them in some amazing, miraculous ways. I mean, at one point, the temple tax was due. They didn't have any money. And Jesus tells Simon, Peter, Simon, go down, catch a fish. And inside that fish is going to be a gold coin in its mouth. I mean, that's, I've caught some fish, not a lot of fish, unfortunately, not near as much as, as some of you have that will remain nameless in this group. Not nearly as much as some of you have, but I've never caught a fish with a gold coin in its mouth. And what was Jesus doing? He's shown his provision. Jesus was that first paraclete. And now he's saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to go back. I'm going to ascend into the Father. I'm going to go back to glory but I'm gonna send another, a helper just like me. He's gonna do the same sort of ministry. He's gonna answer all your questions. He's gonna love you as a love from the Father. He is our helper. Number three, he is the spirit of truth. Do you see that in the text? Even the spirit of truth, Jesus calls him. The spirit reveals the truth. So going all the way back in John, John 8, Jesus says that Satan is a liar. His native language is to speak lies. He loves to lie. If you see his, which we don't, but if you hear his voice, it will come in the form of lies, half-truths. That's what he does. That's his native language. That's what he speaks. That's his primary work is to propagate lies. He lies to us about God. He even lies to God about us. He lies uh, to us about ourselves. He loves to lie about all sorts of things, but God is true. Paul will say this, God is true and everyone else is a liar. That's Romans 3. God is true and Jesus had just said to the disciples, he is the truth. And now he sends the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to come alongside us and to guide us and to counsel us and to help us in the truth. What is the truth? The truth is that which proceeds from God. That's the truth. I think also this is a specific declaration about the writing of the New Testament. The father is the one who holds all revelation. He's making his revelation. He's revealing himself through his son. Jesus will come and live among them and do his ministry among him. Jesus will disappear. The spirit will come to the 11 disciples and those associated with him for the purpose of writing the New Testament. For The purpose of writing the New Testament. In fact, Peter will say this exactly what He will say this, he will say that we were men moved by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. No prophecy of scripture is from anyone's own origination or interpretation, the Father has revealed has revelation. He discloses it initially in Christ, who is the living revelation of God. Then Christ sends the Holy Spirit who brings to mind all that Christ has taught and all that Christ did so we can instruct the writers of the New Testament about the revelation of God so they can write it down accurately. These aren't men just making up stories. These are men who are inspired and filled of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is superintending all of that. And the Holy Spirit is superintending over us as we read the scriptures. He's the spirit of truth because it is the Holy Spirit who engages our minds whenever we read God's truth in his word. As you read this, it's the Holy Spirit who enlivens and enlightens God's word so that we can believe it and trust it and understand it and apply it into our lives. He's the spirit of truth working this work in the lives of God's children, but you got to read the word. You got to get your nose in the book. You got to get them old Bibles out and open them up and pray to the Lord that he would send the spirit, that the spirit would help you to understand God's word. Do you find it trouble? Do you find it hard sometimes to understand God's word? I do. I do. Let me give you two helpful tips to help you to understand God's word. First, Pray. Pray. Because again, this is God's truth. These are God's words spoken to us. This a spirit and life spoken to us. We're people of death, not people of life. Now we are because of who Jesus is, but we're still not yet to receive a glorified body because of what Jesus' work and Jesus' call in our lives. We are, spirit. we are people of life, but we're, we're not like God. And so God gives us his word and then he gives us his spirit to enable us and to help us to understand him. So... Two things. One, pray. Number two is slow down when you read. I think most of us, we, read, we try to read far too much when we read God's Word. I know it's a big book, 66 books, in fact. You're like, man, there's so much in here, I want to read it all. Slow down. And it's better to read one verse and understand that verse under the instruction of the Holy Spirit than it is to read all 66 books and not have a clue what it's saying. Whenever, if you're in my DNA, we we go through one chapter of the Bible in two weeks. One chapter of, right now we're in 1 Thessalonians, one chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and we'll cover that over two weeks. And I'll say, try to read this one chapter five times a week. Just keep reading it, keep reading it. Slow down, savor God's word. Pray. All right, number four. He is for believers, in believers, and with believers forever. The Holy Spirit is for believers, in believers, and with believers forever. Do you see that in the text? Who can receive the Holy Spirit? Only believers. That's what Jesus says. Only believers. Only those who know Jesus, who come to believe and to trust in Jesus can receive the Holy Spirit. The world cannot receive him, but believers, you do receive him and all believers receive him in his fullness. That we as a church, we reject the notion of the second blessing of the Holy Spirit where you get more of the Spirit sometime later after your conversion. We believe it's the Spirit that empowers your conversion, first of all. And second of all, through your faith and repentance in Christ, you receive him. He abides in you and with you. Now, like with any truth, it has to be revealed to you and you've got to walk in it. You need knowledge of the truth and you need to walk in congruence with that truth, living with a daily understanding that the Holy Spirit is with you and living with a daily understanding of all that Christ has accomplished for you and all that Christ is and has done for you. That's what scripture talks about when it says, now walk in the Spirit. That's walking with the with, with the daily intentional, knowing that the Spirit is in me and with me. Spirit is empowering my walk, walking with the daily knowledge of everything, the fresh reiteration of everything that Christ has accomplished on the cross. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Paul says, to walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The Spirit, he is for believers. The Spirit, he is in believers, right? Do you see that? The Holy Spirit dwells in us. He won't show up on a CAT scan or an MRI, but he is in us, in our, in our souls, with our spirits, that's what Paul says. In fact, Paul even goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13 that our spirit, our bodies is, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, if you are a believer, it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity makes his home, makes his dwelling place inside of you. And Paul says that has huge implications in your life. Means everywhere that you go and everything that you do, you take the Spirit with you. Everything that you do, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, he is involved in that. The Spirit is not an impersonal force. It's not just some kind of power, that generic power that exists out in the cosmos, an impersonal force, not like the force. This isn't Star Wars. You certainly aren't Luke Skywalker. If anybody, you'd be Jar Jar Binks, right? He's not that. It's not work like that. That's not the spirit. The spirit is personal. In the scriptures, he's called a he. He's with us. He's personal. He's in us. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us that makes His abode, he makes his his heart in us. I mean, sorry, he makes his home in us. He's the person of the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of love. He enables us to love. We'll see that next week. He's also able to be grieved. He has feelings because he's a person. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.30, I believe it is. Do not, grieve not the Holy Spirit which wish has come to you. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By sinning. By ignoring Him. By not walking in the truth. By not living a life congruent to, congruent to what the declarations of the gospel are. That you belong to God. That you're called to be holy. That you're called to live differently. That you're called to be on mission. How long will He be with us? How long will the Spirit be with us? Forever. That's what the text says. Forever. Now, Let me give, in the remaining 10 minutes, let me give you to you, number one, the first advantage to Jesus' ascension in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully we got a good, decent understanding of what the Holy Spirit is, what he's doing. Now let me give you the first advantage from our text. Let's back up and look at this in verse number 12. The first advantage that we see is that the Spirit prepares us, leads us, and empowers us for great works. This is verse number 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. It is the Spirit who prepares us and leads us and empowers us for great works. Did you see that in the text? Jesus says, whoever believes in me, he will also do the works that I do, and even far greater works than these will he do. Now, does that freak anybody out in, in the room. Like when I read that and have read that through the years, that kind of gives me like a, holy cow, what's Jesus talking about? Because let's think about Jesus's works. Let's think about Jesus's works in the gospel of John. What all has Jesus done so far? Well, Jesus has fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. Jesus has earlier, his first miracle, he's turned water into wine, fed 5,000. Jesus has healed a, a, he's healed a lame man, a paralytic, He's healed a blind man who's blind since birth and he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Like those are some pretty great works. And now what Jesus is saying, you are going to do greater works than these. What's greater than raising a dead man? A man who's been dead from three, what is greater? Well, I think what Jesus is getting at here is Jesus isn't, the emphasis isn't on how spectacular the miracles are. It's not on, Jesus isn't saying you're going to do more miraculous, more spectacular works. In fact, when Jesus, if we looked at the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus would, whenever Jesus would work a miracle, the emphasis wouldn't be on the miracle. The emphasis would be on Jesus's claim about who he was and the nature of the salvation that he brought. The Jesus' miracles throughout John, especially, they have served as kind of object lessons, but in the object lesson, the object of the lesson was always Jesus and not the miracle. Jesus, let me show you as an example of how I'm going to give sight to the blind. Those who are spiritually blind, like these Jews, I'm going to give sight to them in order to show that Jesus gives sight to a blind man. Jesus talks about, I am the way, the res- I mean, I'm in the resurrection and the life. Let me show you how I resurrect the dead by resurrecting Lazarus. And so when Jesus here calls us to do greater works, he's not telling us we're going to do something more spectacular. But what Jesus is saying is, like the works that you're about to do, they're gonna be, I think what Jesus is getting at here is, is they're gonna be greater in their scope and in their quantity. They're gonna be greater, not more spectacular, not more miraculous, but they're gonna be greater in their, in their scope and in their quantity. Think about this. At the time of Jesus's death right here, hours before Jesus is going to, about to be died, how many men are in the room? 11. When, after Jesus' death and resurrection, even after Jesus, you know, spend, after his resurrection, spend 40 days with his disciples and then he'll ascend into, the, into heaven. And at the end of that, how many disciples does Jesus have? There's about 120, the book of Acts tells us. Acts, the first chapter, is about 120 people in the room with Jesus after Jesus' ascension. And then it goes from 120, Peter gets up and preaches, to 3,000. Fast forward today, and right now, all across this globe, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people worshiping Jesus, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, the same Jesus that you and I worship, believe in, and trust in. When Jesus was here on this earth, Jesus' ministry at the end, it would have probably affected about 70 square miles Pretty small part of the globe. Think about it today. Today there are believers on every continent, in every country. I believe, all across this world. Jesus will speak his words. His words will be written down, and then they'll they'll be in one language, and then later on they'll be translated into other languages. And today, the New Testament has been translated into one thousand seven hundred plus languages 1700 languages hold copies of the new testament now there's about 7000 there's about 7000 languages now a lot of places are multi they use mul- multiple languages but still we have a lot of work left to do but just think about that today 2000 plus years later now there are 1700 languages jesus is saying it's going to be greater in scope and how is that possible? How is that possible? That's not just men working on their own. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus doing what He promised to do. Acts the first chapter, verse eight. Jesus tells His disciples, "You will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, unto the ends of the earth." And that is what's happening. Jesus is, Jesus is sending out by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's sending out and creating witnesses of his disciples. And it works with a lasting effect. Think about this. The 5,000 folks that Jesus fed, they got hungry again, did they not? In fact, they got hungry again and went to Jesus and said, hey, give us some more food. And Jesus said, hey, I'm not here to feed your bellies. I'm here to save your souls. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We just want a free meal. And they all left, but a handful. And Jesus even told his disciples to leave. Think about this: <clears throat> Lazarus died, resurrected from the dead. Guess what happened to Lazarus? He died again. Even our miracle, the greater works that God is calling us to do, will have even a greater, lasting effect that when you and I, when we share the gospel, when you and I, under the Spirit's direction, Spirit's leadership, when you and I, when we share the gospel and God does what only God can do and resurrects the dead and a dead person places faith in the gospel, guess what? That person, through their faith and trust in Jesus, they're saved for all of eternity. That's a lot longer than Lazarus was alive. They're gonna be alive with God forever. It is greater in its scope. Look at verse number 13. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, Jesus says, I will do it. Now this is one paragraph in John's gospel. It seems as if Jesus may be talking about two different things. Jesus is talking about them going and doing and doing greater works. And then Jesus here, it's obvious he's speaking about prayer, but I think it's in one paragraph because it's one thought. Jesus is giving them kind of one thought. In the mind of Christ, Jesus is calling together a call for them to go and to do great works with also with prayer. He's calling them to do great works, works that would require a divine power. They won't be works that you can do on your own, but there'll be works that require my power. And Jesus is now in this text, Jesus is calling them to pray in a new way. Look how he's telling them to pray. Whatever you ask in my name, and then there's a promise that goes alongside that prayer. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this isn't some kind of new spiritual incantation. It's not like J- Jesus is giving the, these disciples kind of the, the right words to say so that when you rub the, the bottle genie, the, and the genie pops out and you know exactly what to say, because if you say the wrong thing in the wrong order, then you don't get really what you want, right? He's not telling them that. He's not telling them, hey, if you use in Jesus' name, then that's the, that's the way like t- twisting God's arm behind his back to get him to say uncle, that you get God to do what God didn't already want to do. That's not what it means whenever you use in my in my name, What does he mean by that? Well, he means this, that praying in the name of Jesus refers to our new position and our new rights. Praying in the name of Jesus refers to our new position and our rights. He's telling us about a new right and a new, and a new position. Remember, it's the Spirit who is applying all that the Son has accomplished. Remember we read in Romans 8, we have a spirit, not the spirit of fear, that makes us fall back into, or not the spirit of slavery that makes us fall back into fear, but what kind of spirit have we been given? The spirit of adoption, whereby we call, cry out, Abba, Father. A few minutes ago, well, about an hour ago, I'm in my office and I'm sitting at my computer and I'm praying through my sermon. And I'm, I'm work, you know, putting the final touches on my sermon and doing all this. And I, I get a text message from one of the vocalists that says, can you bring me some water? Now, the vocalist was my daughter, Kennedy, that was singing in the middle. So I got up and I came in here and I got her a a bottle of water, right? Like, I I didn't mind doing that, but it would be kind of weird if it was Clayton Cook that sent me a text in my office while I'm working on my sermon and said, hey, Pastor Andy, could you bring me a bottle of water? I'd be like, Well, yeah, I can, but that just kind of seems odd. But yeah, here we go, right? But when my daughter said, Hey, dad, can you bring me a bottle of water? Even though I'm like, Girl, I'm here working on my sermon. You kidding me? I'm trying to get prayed up and get ready to preach to folks. I went and got her a bottle of water. And look, that's what, in my name, why does she get to do that? Because we're family. That's my daughter. And in the same way, that's what, when you pray in my name, Jesus is saying that through my blood, I'm going to purchase for you adoption, that you will be the adopted children of God. We see this again where Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. That's again a reminder that we're about, because of Jesus, what Jesus is gonna do, we'll be adopted into the family of God who has access Who has access to you unlike anyone else has access to you? Your children, and Jesus is saying that here in this text. You have access to the Father, whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father, we have a new position with new access to the Father as the children of God. We have, as God's child, you have the Father's ear. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you don't go in there all on your own, but you're going in there in my name, what I've accomplished for you. You're going to go in there, standing in my place that I've created for you. You have the Father's ear. First, praying in the name of Jesus refers to our new position and our new rights. Number two, praying in the name of Jesus means we're praying in congruence with Jesus's will and his character. I know it says in there, ask anything and I will give that to you. And I know, I mean, I know that people use that verse to say like, all you gotta do is pray for that new car in the name of Jesus. That's where this text is where name it and claim it comes from. You name what you want and you claim it because Jesus has said, pray this in my name and I will give it to you. But listen to me, anything doesn't mean anything here. And we know that because of the in my name. That in my name means we're praying for something, we're asking for things that are congruent with Jesus's will and Jesus's character. Now we can think about a couple of examples I could give you where there would be some incongruencies. Imagine this. I mean, and there's coming a day when I will die and I will be here no longer. And let's say that you all, after I die, you all say, hey, you know what? Pastor Andy was a pretty good fella. And what we wanna do is we wanna remember him by starting, by having a memorial library or a memorial bookstore. And so you open up the Andy Lawrence Memorial Library, but inside the library, you stock it full of Joel Osteen books and T.D. Jake books and Benny Hinn books and all kinds of trash like that, right? And those of you that know me, you'd show up and you'd go into the library, you go, wait a minute, Andy couldn't stand these guys. Why have you done that? Like you've, you've misused his name. Or what if after Pastor Frank Phillips passes away? What if we start a new ministry and it's a check and go kind of ministry where you can come and give us your paycheck and then we'll, we'll give you a little bit of it and then we'll charge you 100% interest, you know? And we call it the Frank Phillips Check and Go Ministry. Those of you that know Pastor Frank, you'd be like, no way, right? Or I mean, we could keep going. What if we had the Don Noble like credit card ministry where we taught young couples how to get into credit card debt, here's how you get your first credit card, guys. Step one, you take one of those 25 invitations to get credit cards that you get every day in the mailbox when you're in college and you fill it out. And here's how you swipe the card, right? We go like, wait a minute, those of you that know Don Noble, you go like, he was nothing about that. I was kept one more. What if we had a, what if we had the have, have any of you Miss Rita and Mr. Dave have been in uh, in Mexico? Have you Have any of you all ha- ever had one of Miss Rita's pies? <laughs> like, when Hank Williams Jr. said, "If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie," like he he hadn't had one of her pies yet. That's why he didn't think, "If heaven ain't a whole lot like one of Miss Rita's pies," right? But what if we had a ministry for Miss Rita's handout, but instead of pies, we gave out? turnips and peas. You know what I'm saying? You'd be like, wait a minute, those of you who know Miss Rita, we should be giving out apple pies and minced meat pies and coconut cream. No, not coconut cream pies. Why would we put sawdust in food? That's what coconut is. It's just basically sawdust, right? But that's what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is saying, you can pray anything in my name. He's not just saying, hey, just pray for anything. He's not just, hey, just pray for anything. What he's saying here is praying for anything in my name, what is congruent with with Jesus' character, what's congruent with Jesus' mission. That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what Jesus is praying. Praying for things that glorify the Father through the Son, through Jesus that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Like when we think about people name it and claim it and people do an exorcism in the name of Jesus, I command you to cast like let me show you how you pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, I'm about to share the gospel with my neighbor who's yet to place faith in you. Jesus, I'm not going in my own stead, but I'm going in your name. In the name of Jesus. Will you help me? Will you meet me there? Will you illuminate what I'm going to say? Will you draw him to yourself? Will you do what only you can do? Jesus, I'm I'm I'm, pray- I'm I'm asking in your name, will you do that, Jesus? I'm asking you for in my name. When you pray for your children, Jesus, I'm praying, I'm coming to you in your mighty and in your great name and I'm interceding for my child. And you know my child right now, that you're in sin. Jesus, in your name, I pray that you would do what only you could do. That what Jesus is put together in This one passage, Jesus has put a call to greater works that will be fulfilled by the mission of the church. And he's reminding his disciples, you can't do it on your own. I'm gonna empower you. Prayerfully ask for my presence and the coming of my spirit and prayerfully ask as you go out and watch me work. Paul, he picks up on the same, I think, notion when Jeffrey Paul writes in Ephesians, the second chapter, in verses 8, 9, and 10, just listen to this. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you and I, we are Jesus' workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Church, may we be a church that is dependent on the Spirit. May we be a church that is eager to do the good works that the Father has prepared beforehand that you and I may walk in them. And may we prayerfully live our lives asking the Father to send the Spirit to come and to empower all that we may say and all that we may do to glorify Jesus. There's times when we talk about, man, just the Spirit was really, was really uh, with us this morning. Man, we just had a, a sense of the presence of the Spirit in the room. I remember whenever I was a kid, the church that I attended, they, they closed out every, the benediction, every Sunday. This was at First Baptist Church, Walton, Walton, Kentucky. They close out every Sunday morning. The benediction, what's the song? There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. The truth is, there wasn't always a sweet, sweet spirit in that place. But nevertheless, they would sing that song every week. And we talk about that. Do you want to know how and where the spirit comes? How we can experience that? By glorifying the son. That's what the spirit lives to do, is to glorify the son. And when we begin to glorify the Son, the Spirit comes and joins us and partners with us so that we can, empowers us so that we can glorify the Son. And here in a minute, we have a moment to experience the Spirit as we glorify the Son, as we remember the Son and what He's done for us by allowing His body to be broken for us, allowing His blood to be shed for us. So when we come this morning, may we remember that, may we experience the Spirit, may we remember the Spirit is applying all that Christ has accomplished for us. This is a picture of what Christ. This is a reminder of what Christ has accomplished for us. And we remember that, and may we think about that. And as we do, may the Spirit supernaturally may He apply that into our own hearts. So even what we even what we feel is in congruence with those truths. Let's pray. Jesus, come. <clears throat> draw near to us even in this moment as we come to remember you. As we come to remember all that you have done for us, may your spirit be with us, enabling us, helping us, empowering us to remember Jesus. All for you and for your glory. We glorify you. We thank you, Jesus, for being obedient, for coming and living the life that we could not live, the death that we deserved, then rising again victoriously, triumphantly, and then even saying in that that you have been you've been resurrected again for our justification. That your even your resurrection has implications on our salvation and how we live out our lives. May we as your children, those who have been set free from sin, may we live our present lives in congruence to that. It is for freedom that you have set us free. You sent the Holy Spirit who is making your people holy. And in this time, as we examine our own lives, may we be quick to repent and really repent though. Under again, under the, under the power of the Spirit, would you make known to us any sinful ways, any sinful habits, any sinful thoughts, any sinful words if we have, as you teach us, Jesus, if we have ought against our brother, if we have someone that we have offended, someone that we have hurt, someone that we have gossiped about, someone who we just don't like, may we, before we come and remember your blood, may we remember the grace that was shown to you and may we go in that spirit of grace and ask for forgiveness, may we be quick to repent of any and all sin before we come here. And then Jesus, as we come, as we drink this cup and eat this bread, may we remember that this is the means by which you cleanse guilty sinners like us. May we just give you worship and praise and you're holy and your precious name. Amen.